All right, everybody, welcome back. This is episode 11. My name is Stephanie Hicks. My co-host, John Michelli, is here, and we are the corresponding author. So this episode, we decided we're going to continue with the theme from our last episode of preparing for interviews for academic data science jobs. Yeah. All right. So we had a few things that we wanted to discuss. Do you want to kick us off this time? or? Yeah, so I think we covered a lot of great things in the interview podcast in the last one, but I wanted to go over some things that I thought might be relevant or kind of a surprise for certain people on the market. Some things I have seen with some students doing like prep interviews and stuff like that. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to bring things up like, for example, someone asking you which study section you would want to submit to. So how about we talk about what is a study section for students who yeah. may not know? So the NIH or most uh, you know government bodies are broken into different um, institutes. So the NIH right, is the National Institutes of Health. So there are multiple institutes. And then within those institutes, there are different study sections in there. And those study sections controlled specific aspects of research and specific pots of money. And so a study section, can you give like an example of a few study sections that you're aware of? Um, so one of the ones that are is very common for uh, statisticians of biostatisticians is BMRD, the Biostatistical Methods and Research Design uh, study section which is under, um, I think it's a general one under the NIH, but that is one where a lot of people submit to, right? And this is different whether you um, submit to, for example, uh, NSF, the uh, National Science Foundation, or NIH, the National Institutes of Health. The BDMA, the Biodata Management and Analysis right. Study Section, that's also a common one for, I would say, statisticians or medical health scientists to submit to that might be a little bit more methodological than like a clinical one, whereas uh, a statistician or a data scientist would be the PI, the pr uh, principal investigator versus, you know, some of these other ones where it'd be like a clinical trial and like a clinician might be the PI of that. Right. That makes sense. Okay. And so you're saying that on the job interview, somebody might expect to be asked where to submit a grant to. What about the topic or just locations or what do you, what have you encountered? I've, I was actually asked this uh, when I interviewed a few years ago, and I was completely dumbfounded and had I, my answer was terrible. Um, so I think I said like I think I said something like, "Oh, the NIH," which doesn't make sense. Um, but I think the question is getting at the idea is, do you have an idea or do you have a sense of grant submission processes? And if you have that, do you have an idea of what you submit in the first like two to three years? So generally what I would say for me or for a lot of students is probably a continuation of your work or expanding on the work. Um, almost no thesis or no set of research is like done and solved when you left, right? So it would be expanding on that with new data sources or new methodology. Um, so I would generally probably also look up if you are funded, how you are funded, which study section that was submitted to. So you could always ask your PI or advisor. Yeah, that makes sense. And so had you had experience by that point? Uh, writing grants? No, not at all. I, I, I still have a basic, a basic understanding now in, in a lot of respects. I, I've collaborated on a lot of grants 
and I've done smaller grants, but a nuts to bolts start to finish R01 for NIH, I have not submitted one of those. I know you have. An R01? No, I haven't submitted an R01, but I have submitted oh. a more of a postdoc early career training grant, um, which was funded. So what are the numbers and letters on that one? What uh, The numbers and letters are K99 slash R00. <laughs> It's very so I know those are called like kangaroo. They sometimes are called kangaroo grants. I saw this on Twitter the other day. I I honestly had never heard of that phrase before. <laughs> but maybe okay. it's field yeah. specific. In what well, context? K nine nine R O O right? Roo, kangaroo. Right? Yeah. Kangaroo. No, I just nobody had pointed or nobody had used that phrase with me up until now. So that was a new one. Yeah. So again, K are generally trainings, R's are for research. So if you're a data scientist, I would highly suggest if you're discussing this and they're saying what type of grant, I would look into R01, which is a large research grant, and R21, which is usually an analysis of data that's already out there because a lot of us might not be collecting our own data, but definitely can make new methodology and analyze some data out there. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, what are some other things that you might be asked that are a little bit surprising? Like, for example, Someone once asked me, who are your biggest competitors in your area of research? And I was like, huh, that's a really interesting question. And, and I mean, I kind of scrambled for a second thinking back to like the types of papers that I'm often citing in my research. But I think the, the point of that question is more about, do you understand the literature and who are your peers that are working on similar problems to you? in the context of A, just importance of, of understanding like the field, the scope of the field, but then also being able to write papers and write grants and give credit where credit is due, um, and also acknowledging what type of work has already been done um, in, in collaboration with your work or in um, simultaneously or alongside your work and so forth. That's an interesting question. I, I've never gotten that. I get a lot. I got a lot more of who do you see you could collaborate with here? But it is an interesting way to reframe it, um, which is saying like, I think in some respects, you're completely right that it's really trying to gauge, do you know the field? Do you have a handle on kind of what's out there? Are you kind of well-read-ish, at least in your niche? And But it's interesting because I, I do take that question a little bit differently. It's like, who could, no, I, oh, really? I mean, you, no, I don't take it differently, but I, I kind of devil's advocate, I could see like, them saying like, who could we hire? That's like you, but not you. Who's better out there than you? Kind of thing. Oh, I didn't. I don't think that's think the way they, that way. they I, aim it okay. for. I, I just that just flipped in my head. Yeah, we'll go with oh, the positive yeah. you. The positive because they want to hire you. Otherwise, they they want to <laughs> consider you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. But maybe you're right. I mean, I, that's it's within reason that I could think that could happen. But we'll go with the positive you. <laughs> um, Another one that so that's, oh, sorry, that's an interesting question. Yeah, no, no, that's that's a very interesting question. I've never I've never heard anyone uh, other than you bring that up. That's it. So you were asked that though. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just like, huh. <laughs> Have to be for a loop. <laughs> um, so if you're a student, for example, you might not have a lot of publications. Maybe you have one, two, three. If you're like very productive during your PhD, and so if you go on the market to to get either a data scientist position or an academic data science position or a faculty position, just a, a regular tenure track faculty position in a traditional department, you may have only just a few publications on your CV. Um, and that could be due to a variety of reasons. Like you could imagine 
you have a lot of things pending and you don't, you're not able to submit preprints or um, you're just in the process of writing a lot, or I mean, there could be a variety of reasons why you don't have a lot of manuscripts. And so one question that uh, was, I was told about was like, so if somebody looks at your CV and says like, how come you only have one manuscript? Um, Like there could, again, there could be like a variety of reasons for that. Like you could say, well, maybe like the project was given to you, for example, as a student, and it didn't really work out in the long run. And so projects that you spent time on didn't pan out. Um, But even if that is the case, I I think the most important thing that you should think about when replying to that question is what did you learn from that project or how did you move forward from that project? So in all projects, even if it doesn't lead to a publication or lead to a software package, you should still be able to state what you learned from it or what you did not learn from it or a negative result or how you were able to build upon that to move forward for the next thing, if that makes sense. I think that was a really insightful question. No, I, I think that's a, a great point. And, and this I'll bring back to put everything on your CV that's kind of relevant because this this applies, I think, also to like classroom and work and homework and stuff like that, where like you created a shiny app for like a project for a class and it ended up being like something you learned, put that on your CV. But I agree. Um, I think a few aspects of the publication uh, numbers come into play here. Uh, the first, definitely, if you are not allowed to put your preprints online, I would highly suggest. So one, if you can do it, right? Because people are going to look up right. your stuff. And if you have a link to like a preprint that goes, you know, by and large, way more than just saying like, oh, I have this work in press, like, or, or sorry, sorry, not in press, in, in preparation, Right. That, that term right. has lost a lot of luster. I think it doesn't mean like, you know, you could have a hundred things in preparation, just various, various stages of preparation. Right. Um, right. So I would yeah. ask uh, maybe if the people who aren't letting you put out a preprint, I don't know. I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen this in a packet, but maybe attaching those papers actually to the packet. Uh, so the, the um, committee could actually see those if they wanted to review them. So it's much more of a, you know, a limited release, right? If you have a a paper that's together, you could actually attach that to your packet. Um, So that at least uh, gives you some ideas like, oh, maybe, you know, there are more papers in the fire. Here are some of them. They're fully developed, but I can't release them widely. Uh, So I think that would be a good idea. The the other thing is, Mm -hmm. you know, I always say in some, I say a lot in many respects that, a bad collaborator can be as helpful as a good collaborator sometimes um, because they, oh, they really gosh. show yeah. you very clearly <laughs> yeah. uh, what you don't want, how you don't want a collaboration to go, how things can go poorly. And I wouldn't say, I would say very much not to use the interview in any respects to say negative things about your collaborators in any way, but you can say that there was a mismatch and, but how you actually resolve that is the really important aspect of um, that, that discussion. So it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to navigate because if you say, you know, my collaborator essentially didn't give me the data for three months or, you know, or things got caught up in, you know, legal or the, the school administration, um, you can say that in, in, in certain ways and spin it, but you really have to say, you know, if I were to start this in the future, if I were to start this again, we'd have, for example, a more upfront conversation about who's the first author or where the data is coming from, or do we have access to it? Do we have IRB approval? Things like that, um, I think would be a good way to spin some of those things that could have been detrimental. 
talking about what you've learned from yeah. that experience and then how you would move forward, essentially. I think that's really insightful. Um, it shows that you have growth. Um, so are there other questions? Like, what if somebody says, what are your, what are your weaknesses technically or professionally? And like, how can you bolster those weaknesses? So that's like a question that somebody may ask. Mm -hmm. You may like have the inability to let a project go, for example, <laughs> like you're the type of person that starts a hundred projects and never really finishes one. And so there the person is asking you about, can you identify, self-identify what your weaknesses are and can you um, identify strategies to help you get past some of those weaknesses? I think that's a really important skill. Yeah, those are always it's it's hard for introspection, but if you also have really close colleagues or other students around you um, that you know will tell you the truth, even if it's the hard truth, um, I think ask them. Uh, you know, maybe you can set up an online an anonymous forum saying, you know, why am I? You know, tell me bad things about me, and I won't know who it is. Um, but like for example, myself, like I know I love getting in the weeds with code. And writing about all that is not as exciting most times to me. So to, to solve that, I really have to um, set time and schedules and meetings with myself to do writing, to do a write accountability group that I know you and I are a part of, mm -hmm. things like that to really push the writing forward because it's very easy for me to push the coding and software forward. The writing is sometimes a little bit harder. So things like that, I know about myself that that excites me a lot more. Um, but I know that I need to do the writing, right? The writing's the dissemination. The writing's the job in many respects in academia. I know. So. Do you want to talk about what's a writing accountability group for a minute? Just getting a little sidetracked. Yeah. So there's a book called uh, How to Write a Lot. I would highly recommend it and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So it's a book that I believe was written by a psychologist or someone in the psych psychologist or psychiatry field of research. So um, it's a great book and it describes like the things you need to do to write a lot. Uh, spoiler, it is have a meeting, set up a time and then do that writing. And no matter what happens, hell or high water, go in there and write, even if it's not you know, the best writing or, you know, your most inspired writing or, you know, even going to be used in a manuscript, you, you keep a schedule and you keep to it. And one of the things uh, the author describes is what's called a writing accountability group. I think for people like us in academia who are very independent, right, you're working a lot, maybe sometimes on your own or in your own office, you know, you can push priorities any way you want. And that can be detrimental if you're pushing really high priorities to the bottom. And so this writing accountability group has a group of people in a room at least once a week, I would say, where the idea is the, the setup is very simple, that you are supposed to be accountable to your peers. And the idea is that you come in, the setup is generally for an hour. Uh, if you had one last week, you take five minutes and say what you did last week. You talk about five minutes. What are you going to do during this session? These 50 minutes, you write for, or 40 minutes, you write for a solid 40 minutes doing whatever you said you were going to do. There's a five minute recap of what you did in those last 40 minutes and then a five minute discussion of what you're going to do for the next week. So that's the way he bases it in the book. But the idea is also, I just see, you know, in our group, you know, if I'm, if you see me doing a bunch of coding stuff, please just tell me to stop. Like, Hey, call me out for that saying, Hey, you're supposed to be writing here. Um, you, you know, you have all week to do all the coding. So take the time now to actually do the writing. So. I know. 
Would you characterize it any differently? No, that's it. And I found in our own writing group that you and I are a part of, it's been it's been really great. It's allowed me to push out some work related, some manuscripts that have been lingering in the background for a long time that I've been trying to push out. And so it, it's really a very accountable um, group that holds you to finishing projects that you need to finish that are just ones that may or may not excite you, but you know you need to get done <laughs> or uh, whatever it is. So I would say it's my, it's the best meeting of the week for me, hands down. Best. Wow. Well, do you like meetings in general? Because I could, let's call it. No. Uh, I mean, it is the most productive meeting I have all week, I would say. Okay. There you go. <laughs> but I do think it's also uh, a group like this also does different things. So yes, it allows me to push out things that kind of may be sitting on my desk that I really need to do. But um, I know you and I also have done uh, grant writing. Uh, mine was an internal grant to Hopkins, but we did grant writing in there. And I think we were way, or I was way ahead of schedule or like I actually did things a lot um, over a period of weeks versus like crunch time in like a day or two or like a, a one solid week. So I would say it gave me a better planning phase saying um, I'm going to do this, you know, writing each day or sorry, writing at the writing accountability group each week. So I would make progress on grants that I think would fall to maybe the middle of the pile each week. So I think that allowed me not only to get stuff off my plate that was necessary, but also really um, look at a longer term, a, you know, a longer schedule than just like crunch time week for a grant. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, we, we've listed out some questions of things that you may be asked, but what about questions that you may want to ask the people that you're interviewing at? Like one thing that comes to mind is, are you happy? <laughs> what is, what is the life like in the department or at the institution? Do you have a good work-life balance? Um, is there a good gender mix of the faculty? Um, what, what are some of the things that you feel like are important to ask? Um, so there are questions that people sometimes do ask that might be a little bit cart before the horse. So they ask about buying out of teaching a little too early, I think in the process sometimes. Oh. <clears throat> so that generally does not lend well, lend itself well to say that like you really value teaching if you're going to a place that really values teaching. Um, right. I would say questions like, where do you feel like there is a need? Where do you feel like I could really fit in your teaching kind of realm? I think on the flip side, some people do give a question. So the, the committee will actually ask you, you know, have you actually thought of a specific class that you teach, which is very interesting because some places I believe are really, I don't know if they're looking for an answer per se, but they really, uh, I think are happy with an answer. Like, I think I would make a course that's maybe a special topics course that's really focused on my niche, or I would teach this, um, this high level class that maybe exists or maybe don't. And other places I really think, I don't know. I don't know if it's an unreasonable expectation, but have an expectation of that. You kind of know their teaching catalog a bit and say like, what, which of our classes could you teach? So I think a question for them where you turn it around and say, where do you think I would fit best in your teaching kind of needs and teaching profile? Right. I do think it's good though, for you as an applicant or interview person, interviewee to have suggestions of things that you would be excited to teach. But then I do think it's important to get a, the landscape of what they're looking for as well and try and see how you would fit into there. Um, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I would also ask like, 
how long have you been there and why have you been there so long? Like in a good way, like why do you, why have you stayed? Like it seems great. Why have you stayed? What's about, what is it about this, this job, this department that excites you or makes you happy? You could explicitly ask about like the promotion and tenure process. I think that's important. Um, I think we mentioned that in the last one. So like, are there metrics? Like, do I have to have a certain number of publications or the metrics based on teaching reviews? Do I need a particular type of grant to be um, promoted? Do I, can I take time off for rental leave? Um, and how does that affect the tenure process? What's the turnover rate for your institution? Things like that. Yeah. Those are all really important. Um, what about salary? So you could ask, what's the percent of my salary that I need to bring in? That's another one. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, usually, like the chair can answer that right away, but a lot of the faculty can do that too. Um, also, you should ask, like, if so, not only the question about percentage, but also how many years do I have at the beginning to be able to ramp up to that? So sometimes, often the cases. If you're expected to cover X percentage of your salary, you may have a couple of years to ramp up to that. You're not necessarily required to start covering your salary the day you start because you might not have any collaboration. So asking about the ramp up period is important. Unless you're a research track faculty. Unless you're a research track faculty, but you may still be interested. I don't know. Yeah. You may get some <laughs> runway to, to start yeah. up, but it may be a bit different. It may be a bit different. That's a good point. Yeah. I would say mentorship um, too, right? How is mentorship? Oh yeah. Done? So, is there like a formal mechanism um, in, implemented in the department or at the university? Um, do those people, your mentors, for example, are they willing to help review grant proposals to give you feed, critical feedback, constructive feedback? That's a really important thing. And then, like, you could also ask about co-mentorship opportunities. So, some places when they bring in junior faculty, they try to bring in junior faculty on PhD committees so you can start to co-mentor students or co-mentor postdocs, like ask how about do students, that. Uh, yeah, how do students kind of choose their advisors or how do they kind of find faculty, I think is always a good question. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're, especially if you're worried about um, grants, I've always found it interesting to see what places respond with, you know, if I were to try try to write my own grant tomorrow, like what support do you have with respect to budgets and things like that? But also like, would you assign me a mentor? Or, like maybe would the mentor uh, help me with my first grant? Things like that. What institutional support you have, what department support you have, and then what mentorship support you have, um, especially when you're talking about grant writing, if that's something you're really concerned about. Right. One thing I like to ask or that um, someone told me to ask was like, if you're talking to the chair or just the faculty in general or the, the students, maybe even you could ask like, where do you see this department going in the next three to five years? <laughs> That's kind of like, they always ask you as the interviewee, what do you want to do for the next three to five years? Like where do you see your um, focus and research interest sort of centralized around, but you could also ask the same about the department. I mean, maybe the department is moving towards developing, um, a data science, a master's in data science, and they're becoming more applied, or maybe they're, they have a long-term goal of hiring five faculty in the next five years or something. I mean, getting a sense of, are there major initiatives happening in the department that may not be on the website, 
uh, it might not be listed on the website, like we're going to hire five faculty in the next five years. But uh, and in, within the interview, you can start to get a sense of what are some of the initiatives or goals where the department's going. I think that's a great question, especially if you're going to a growing department in the sense they may have been founded recently, especially if you're in academics and data science, it might be a new institute or a more newish or rebranding or things like that. So I think those missions actually might be a lot more pliable and changing or sorry, the missions might not be changing, but the structure of the department and actually how they enact that mission might be a lot more dynamic than in other kind of standard stat departments or well um, established ones. So that's a great question. Yeah. Um, you could ask about like how many students does the department have? Are there training grants for these students? How are these students funded? If you want to work for a student, do I need to cover their tuition and their stipends or one or the other or neither? Um, sort of like the nuts and bolts of how you interact with students. How do you get in, um, connected with students to start projects together? How do you pay for students and things like that? I think it's a really important question. Do you have space for postdocs? Do you have space? Yeah, maybe space is a big constraint at the the place you're interviewing at. Yeah, I think also a, a flip side. So a lot of times they ask, like, if you were to start tomorrow, like, who would you collaborate with here? Right. I think it's also on the flip to maybe ask the department, wh- which departments do you guys collaborate most closely with? Do you have like another, is, is there a really close connection to the school of medicine? If you're not in the school of medicine or like this department or that department or a school with, you know, an epidemiology department or an infectious disease department, things like that. I think also she say like, what, what bridges do you already have made that I could maybe walk, walk over? Yeah. I mean, just kind of generalizing that question, how are research um, collaborations formed, like either within the department or outside the department? I mean, are they formed very organically? Is there a formal program where faculty can get connected with researchers? That's a really great question that you, that you brought up. Um, I find it, I find the chair makes a lot of decisions um, in most departments. It's That varies department to department. I mean, some departments are more democratic than others, but in general, the chair makes a lot of decisions. So when you're interviewing in the department, I think it's important to ask or to get a sense of at least what are the the values or the academic values of the chair? Like what are their priorities? So you, you get a sense of what is this person wanting to focus on for the next couple of years? If, if this is my chair that I'm going to work with, I, I just want to make sure that the priorities are lined up. So because they are probably going to make a lot of decisions with input from the faculty, of course, but um that's really important, I found. Yeah, that's an interesting question because um, I'm on the faculty senate and we had some discussions the other week and uh, somebody in another department was talking about how they have a new chair. And, and um, I guess I never really thought to look at the structure of a department while I was interviewing. Um, how, like, how long had that chair been there? Um, I don't know if it would be appropriate or how to ask the question, how long do you see the chair staying the chair if they've been in there a long role for example so if they've been there for yeah i'm not trying to ask i I wouldn't (laughs) i wouldn't ask that but i think getting from your uh your mentors and people, your your advisor and stuff like that, you can ask those type of questions saying like, hey, that chair has been there in the chair position for a while. Do you think they'd stay there for the next five years in that position or maybe transition back to faculty and things like that? Because again, you want to, you know, if you go there, you want to make sure you know what you're getting into, right? Of course, of course. And then like one other thing I guess I could think about is computational resources. So um, 
You may have access to some kind of supercomputer at the state level. You may have um, a cluster of, of some sort or servers. Your department may work on Amazon AWS mm-hmm. um, or some cloud-based service. I, it all varies. Are these things provided to you at no cost? Um, what's the funding behind them? Are there fees that are included in grants? Is it a per cost is it a cost per person, per per group, or per department? How much? I mean, those questions can be like very detailed. But depending on the type of position you're going to, if you're responsible for footing the bill for that, it's better to know now. Um, yeah, mind. especially how how are postdocs and students priced as well is a very important question. Yeah. In, in yeah. that res- in the computational respect, obviously for the fringe and health insurance and all that kind of stuff, that's important, but also computationally because, um, you know, students do a lot of work and some of them chew up a lot of compute time. And if you're on the bill for that, you should, you should know coming in. Right. I know. Um, okay. So maybe like, what are just some other important things to keep in mind? So one thing that comes to mind for me is treat department secretaries and receptionists respectfully, they they can sense a lot about a person if, um, if somebody who's coming to interview isn't treating them with a lot of respect. And so they're, they're your friend, essentially. They're here, they're there to make the interview process as painless as possible. And they can also express enthusiasm for particular candidates if they're asked. And so treating them with respect, I think is really important and saying thank you for coordinating my hotel and um, dinner reservations. I really appreciate that. I I find that goes a long way. I couldn't agree more. And I believe uh, a lot of them have been there longer, much longer than some of the faculty and uh, depending on the, on the department. And if you go there and you already have a good relationship, that's even better. But if you were kind of curt or maybe, not as responsive. Um, that's already getting off on maybe not a great foot with with the, uh, those people. And the administration and f- staff that really do a lot of the work, especially in our department, are the glue that keeps it together. So um, those people really, made, you know, the lights are on, the the wheels turning because a lot of uh, a lot of their work. And I would I would highly suggest, you know. And the other thing is, you know. Uh, everybody's not perfect. And if you're not a, you're kind of a jerk, your, uh, your, um, reimbursements might go to the bottom of the pile and I don't blame that person a bit. Right. Um, yeah. So while you're on your first interview, should you ask about salary or try to negotiate salary or space? My sense is no. I mean, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. I would wait for the offer. I wait for the offer too, but I do think it's important for you to do your due diligence and sort of um, get the landscape or get get like a ballpark range of the types of salary that you would be expecting. And if somebody were to ask you a range, kind of go in prepared saying, well, based on this survey of my profession or my professional organization, uh, given my years of experience or given my degrees, I believe I would, I should earn, you know, I should be paid this amount with like the minimum and the maximum um, providing range. I think that is important, but trying to negotiate it in the first interview, I wouldn't no, do. No, I, w- I wouldn't either. And I think we're lucky with the ASA, the American Statistical Association. They do yearly surveys 
for salary. So I think that is uh, is really nice for us. And then the other thing, if you're uh, applying to a public university, um, they, um, I believe all states require that the salaries of state employees are published somewhere. So almost always you can find the actual salaries of people in that department. I will say that they don't always encompass. So although it might seem low or high, some of them don't encompass the entire package or everything going on there because there are non-salary benefits, especially to places with high cost of living, if they provide housing for a year or two or things like that. And um, yeah, or maybe not housing, but yeah, they, they help you find you know housing yeah. on campus that, you know, there are university homes that faculty buy and things like that. So there are a lot of other things that you might not know about just from the salary uh, on the website. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Finally, don't knock your present or past employer. <laughs> yeah. It feels silly to have to state that, but um, speak highly of them. I mean, like, don't if you just don't say anything negative, you don't have to be super positive or enthusiastic if you're leaving a situation that you're not really happy with, but just don't knock them. I think um, it's really important because the people who are hiring you, they want to know that you're not going to theoretically knock them <laughs> if you were to leave. Exactly. So. I, I think, I think that's the the way to go. And I think you can definitely discuss if there, if you are changing institutions, like if you're, you know, an assistant, that's trying to go into an associate role or an associate trying to go like maybe a lateral move across the universities. Um, definitely you can discuss if there were some, sp some details of there, but I wouldn't say, you know, it's usually a difference of opinion or things like that. That might be uh, the case or funding might be an issue or, you know, there's more teaching here, things like that. Focus on the positives of the new institution rather than anything negative on the older one, if there were anything. Yeah. Um, and be really confident. I mean, when you're in the interview, body language is important. If you suffer from the imposter syndrome, read up on books that might help you like lean in, um, be enthusiastic. Yeah. I think that's pretty much all I have to say about the interview process. Do you want to talk about offer letters or do you want to wait for another episode? Um, I think we could wait for another time, but I think there is probably some, uh, I'm trying to think of some other things that we might actually chat about. Um, no, I think that's, that's probably it. Do you have plans for the holidays? I am heading off to China for 12 days uh, for a conference what? for ICSA. I'm going with a couple colleagues who are Wait, what's um, ICSA international Chinese statistical association conference. Cool. So yeah. For how many days? For 12. So we're going to Shanghai, Hangzhou, and Chengdu with some uh, graduate school friends and colleagues now that are native-born Chinese to show me kind of uh, some of the areas, which I'm very excited about. What about yourself? Oh, wow. That's amazing. Congrats. Um, I'm going to be here. I'm not traveling. So my I have family in the area, and I'm just looking forward to not traveling. It's going to be magical. <laughs> So somebody, so I used to always, I was the type of student that would leave school as early as possible to travel home and um, not really enjoy working during the holidays. But now that I have kids, I, I find I very much enjoy working around the holidays because everything is really quiet and there are not a lot of meetings and you can just get a lot of work done if you spend a few days like during the week between Christmas and New Year's, if you go into the office, it's amazing. It's like a ghost town at work. And yet 
you're so productive. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, somewhat surprising what people can do without 80 meetings a week. I'm just saying. Like... <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that that quiet time. Actually, I had a tweet earlier this week. So this fall is generally my busy time of the year. And I'm coming down from like this pure exhaustion um, a roller coaster of a fall between teaching and letter recommend letters of recommendation season or the holiday season. So I am just like done with the semester and looking very much forward to the quiet months of uh, this, like the end of December and January where things settle down and research ideas just flow and I get to write and it just feels so productive and, and I feel like creativity flows. So I, I'm excited I think about that, this. That's a, that's a great time. Uh, especially when you think you get back in your groove on research. Um, so do you have any last thoughts for people going on the job market, going through interviews? Going through interviews. Let's see. Again, I'll just, I think I, I've said this before, when you're on the interview, don't go over your job talk limit. <laughs> Stay on time. Yep. I, I, yeah, definitely reinforce that. Uh, the other thing I would say is uh, try, have, doesn't matter if you feel like you need it or not, have somebody do like a prep, talk with you a prep call that for example things like that that's the easiest way for you to see your blind spots and have them just ask like off the cuff stuff and see how you respond yeah definitely all right well this is the last podcast uh till the holiday so everybody have a good holiday happy holidays everyone bye as always you can follow us on twitter at correspond auth or my handle is strictly stat and stephanie's is stephanie hicks and you can email us at the corresponding author at gmail.com